invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And specifically, today we are going to be, uh, well, I will be reading um, everything through verse 22. Uh, I will, however, be concentrating on verses 11 through 16, 11 through 16. And then next week I will be concentrating on verses, obviously, 17 uh, through 22 in this particular section. There is so much here that I don't want to just uh, skip through it quickly and give it short shrift. But before we turn to the uh, word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word and let's ask for his help and understanding. Sovereign Lord, as we come into your presence once again to hear your word, sometimes we should be asking, is it well with my soul, rather than simply confirming that it is. We know, O Lord, that we need uh, your help in concentrating your help in understanding. If you don't give us the illuminating grace of your Holy Spirit inwardly, we will never be able to understand this word. It will remain darkened to us. We may understand the words in their meaning, but their application will be lost to us. I pray, Lord, also that you would help me. I need your help, Lord. I need your help in dividing your word aright and applying it to your people. If I don't have your Spirit's help, also I will never be able to reach hearts And I do pray, Lord, that as we read these things, we would understand that they apply to us. They didn't just apply to the Ephesians in Ephesus many, many years ago, those Christians who were called out of that particular uh, community. They apply apply to us today. They're just as relevant to us in Fayetteville. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, therefore, to understand these things and to be amazed by what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 Reading now Ephesians chapter 2 and starting with verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by the hands, that at that uh, time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he may, might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of our God will stand forever. The uh, stone in the background in this picture is quite interesting. It was discovered in 1871 uh, by a French archaeologist, and I am not... There we go. (laughs) It was... Oh, my word. Okay. 
We're good. Okay. It was discovered in 1871 by a French archaeologist by the name of Charles Simon Clermont Guénaud. Uh, he discovered it just outside the Al-Atin Gate uh, to the Temple Mount, and it, uh, it was made public to the world, its content, by the Palestine Exploration Fund. Now, following the discovery of the inscription, it was quickly seized by the uh, Turkish authorities, the Ottoman authorities who were in charge of Jerusalem at the time. And it is currently, that stone is currently in the Istanbul Archaeology Museum. Why is this tablet important? Well, the tablet itself was in Koine Greek. They uh, automatically understood that. And an examination determined that the letters had originally been outlined on the stone in blood red paint. The inscription itself in Koine Greek was a warning to pagan visitors to the temple not to proceed any further. And they immediately recognized from what they had taken in from Josephus and his writings about Herod's temple that this was one of the two stones that stood on the balustrade that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women in Herod's temple. It was a warning that read, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and in the enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. The uh, other signs that were up there, this one was in Greek, were in Latin, warning thus pagans to come no closer to the Holy of Holies, the center of the temple, than that outer courtyard. They were proclaimed in the text to be strangers, that's allogenes, a, uh, a foreigner, an alien, uh, a Gentile, somebody from outside of Israel, outside of the covenant people. To be a stranger, obviously, is to be afar off, but in this case, it meant to not be part of the Jewish covenant community. You could have lived in Jerusalem as a Gentile your entire life and still be a stranger. I think that probably if I live in Fayetteville for the rest of my life, I've already been here for, what, 20, 21 years. I am still not considered a real Fayettevillian by those who were born here. I'm still a stranger. I'm from afar off and not really part of the, uh, the community. Well, that was somebody, of course, who was not part of the religious community, who was not an ethnic Jew. The tablet itself that was put on uh, the, the wall was intended to make a literal middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. It was a separation that was at once religious and also cultural. It divided the two of them. Interestingly enough, of course, Hellenistic Jews, who were primarily Greek-speaking, they could go past that particular wall because they were Jewish. But those who were Gentiles by birth, not of the circumcision, they could not. And they were attended also with suspicion and a great deal of hatred. Very few people doubted that if they walked past that wall as Gentiles, they would indeed be set upon and possibly put to death. We remember what happened when the Jews thought that 
Paul the Apostle had brought a Gentile into the uh, inner portion of the temple area and therefore had broken this particular wall. He was in danger of being torn to pieces and it was only because the Roman centurion had seen what was going on or the commander of the garrison just outside of the temple saw what he thought was a riot and had come and rescued him that he survived. Some Gentiles had come close to God in one sense. We think of the centurion Cornelius, who had become a God-fearer, who was well-spoken of within the Jewish community, but he had not become a full Jew. He had not been circumcised and thus cut off from his Gentiles. He could not have continued to have served in the legions. He could not have had unclean companions. And so while he would go to the synagogue and sit in a special area reserved for the God-fearers, he was still behind a screen, cut off from the actual congregation. If he went to Jerusalem, he could pray. Perhaps he could pray in the court of the Gentiles. We know that during the time of Jesus, the court of the Gentiles had essentially been taken over by the money changers and those who were selling sacrifices. So it would have been very, very difficult to actually pray in that particular court. But had he ventured beyond that courtyard, even he who had come so close would still be in tremendous difficulty. He could be an observer of Jewish religion, but he could never be a participant in it really. But this this middle wall that was pointed out by that stone was actually pointing towards a far more important, a more poignant, a, a, a more real spiritual wall. And it was merely really a symbol of the partition that existed not just between Jews and Gentiles because of their their different status before God, members of the covenant community, people who were afar off and so on. And it didn't just speak of the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. It also spoke to the enmity between Jews, Gentiles, and God, the way that they had been cut off. The real cause of their separation from God, of course, was sin. And even a Jew who might be able to pass through that, he could not enter legally within the Holy of Holies. He could not go into that place where only the high priest could go once a year with fear and trembling. There was still a separation between God and even the covenant people that was spoken of between them. So there was a twofold wall of partition one that separated Jews and Gentiles, and another that separated all mankind from God because of sin. Now, one of the things that we remember, and I hope we remember as we've been going through Ephesians, that this book is all about the church. It's all about the people of God, the kahal in the Old Testament, the ecclesia in the New, both words meaning the assembly of God, the people whom God is bringing together to be his worshipers, a people he has designed and made from before time immemorial to be the people who glorify him and enjoy him forever, who are invited into his presence, who have nothing to fear there, who are not going to be entirely eradicated, who are no longer wickedness and darkness, who no longer have to say, woe is me for I am an unclean man before him, who are not spiritual lepers anymore, dead in their uh, sins and trespasses. Paul has been opening up to the Ephesians how they became part of that church. How they became part of that assembly. And he started, you remember, in time immemorial, in the choice of God. 
in choosing to save them by uniting them to Jesus Christ in his election. And then he's rolled forward through the process by which they were incorporated. And now he's talking about what they are being built into. And he uses the analogy of a temple, a living temple made up stone by stone of believers who have been called out. He's talked about the spiritual renovation, the exaltation that they experience. And now he is talking about how their former status has been eradicated. They are no longer foreigners. They are no longer aliens. They are no longer as they once were without knowledge of him. They have been given his oracles. They have been given his revelation, most particularly in the person of his son. Now they have an interest in God. The alienation has been removed and not merely because they now have become members of an organization, a church, but because of what Jesus Christ has done, how they were united to him and how his blood, his death has satisfied the demands of justice that were once against them. He's told them how they were once dead in sins and trespasses, and now they are alive. And he's told them how once those things, the curse of the law that stood against them, how it has been satisfied by Jesus Christ. He's been talking about this intense change that has occurred in these Ephesian Christians. It's a change that affects not just their their spiritual condition before God, but their spiritual condition in the world and their relations to other people. We know that there was intense enmity between Jews and Gentiles, an enmity that in 70 AD, for instance, boiled up into the the rebellion, or rather 66 AD, sorry, uh, that boiled up into the rebellion of the Jews against the Romans. And eventually, of course, uh, ended with that cataclysmic destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But these people whom he's speaking to, he's conscious of the fact that they were once aliens. Most people sometimes feel alienated in the world. They feel uh, adrift or outcast, or they'll move into a new community. You go to a party and you don't know anybody. How do you feel? You feel, ooh, I'm kind of... Kind of a stranger here, kind of weird, you know, and you see all the clicks and so on. It's one of the things that makes it difficult occasionally to to be accepted into the church, Uh, a feeling of not being, not belonging, not having friends and so on, not being part of the community. I would hope that we would do everything that we could to remove that feeling of alienation that existed. But in the case of these Gentiles, prior to their coming to faith in Christ, they were really alienated from the kingdom of God. They were entirely outside of it. They were as not Christian, not part of the kingdom of God, uh, as I was at my birth in relationship to the United States of America. I was in no sense a citizen of that particular commonwealth. I was a subject of Her Majesty the Queen. I was far off. I was estranged. I have been brought near and I have become an America fearer through my green card. I am now, uh, you know, I have certain rights and, and so on, but I am still not a full citizen within the community. There is a certain degree of alienation, and you feel that once you go through customs coming back into the United States. Who are you? Why are you coming here? What have you been doing? What's in your luggage? That kind of thing, you know. Although said with an American accent, not the, uh, not the, the English one that I just adopted there. But the idea of the church, which uh, is part of this entire section, is that 
they have been brought into the kingdom of God and they have been reconciled to all the other members of the church. They are part of the same body. Now this is an idea, and I'm, I'm just going to say this and, and go forward very quickly. This is an idea that is being lost within the church in the United States, both because of a balkanization that occurs within the United States because of race and things like that, but also because we have forgotten that the, the point of the gospel was to not just bring all men back to God and reconciling them to him after they had fallen, but also to reconcile all men to one another within that great assembly. And therefore, Jews and Gentiles within the church, once they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, are at exactly the same level. But I know of many American Christians who think that Jewish believers are tight, you know, they're the, the, the A-class believers, and then Gentiles are something entirely different. And that if you're part of national or ethnic Israel, if you, you are a descendant of Jewish forebears, that you're more important to God. That there's a different reconciliation. There are actually some dispensational believers who believe we don't even need to be preaching the gospel to Jews. That they are actually saved by ethnic descent from Abraham. Which is exactly the opposite of what Paul preached throughout his entire career. And we read throughout the New Testament that church is the body of Christ. To not know Christ is to not be part of his body. To not be part of his body is to not be saved. Regardless of your ethnic descent. It consists, that is the kingdom and the body of Christ consists of those in whom Christ dwells by his spirit. And if that is not the case, then they are still aliens. It doesn't matter who their parents were. It doesn't matter who your parents were. Your parents can be pastors. They can be famous pastors. And yet you can still be an alien. You can still be alienated from the church and an alien to God. What Paul has been telling both Jews and Gentiles is to be without Christ, is to be without hope. And so one of the things that he tells them is that he tells them, he starts off by talking about their prior condition. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles, and note the word that he says, in the flesh. Okay, what does that mean? Well, uh, it, it's not just referring to their, their birth, how they were born. It refers to the fact that they were once these uncircumcised people. They did not have the sign of God's covenant in their flesh. Uh, circumcision was, was something that God had administered, or appointed rather, and then his people administered as a, a seal of God's covenant with his people, an external marker of the way that they had been claimed by him. And therefore, really to be uncircumcised prior to the coming of Christ, was, was a great misfortune. It meant that, yes, you did not have the sign, the outward sign of citizenship within the kingdom of God. You were an alien. You were cut off. But Paul also knew that the sign itself had become a, 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 a self-righteous thing. It had become also a, a sign of self-righteous hatred and that there had grown up this over-dependence upon the external sign without the inward reality of the Spirit of God indwelling them. You see, whether it's circumcision or baptism, if all we have is the external sign, it will do us no good. We absolutely need that which the sign itself points forward to, which is the renovation, the washing, and the indwelling by the Holy Spirit. 
And he makes that very clear that he's, he's talking about these people who have this over-dependence upon the outward sign of circumcision. When he talks about who are called, this is in verse 11, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by the hands. He says, you were called, and you, to this day, you Gentile Christians are called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. But he's speaking there in a way that indicates they're not really the circumcision. Those who are making the, the sign and only the sign, the, the great difference. In Romans 2.28, Paul wrote these words, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In Philippians 3.3, writing to a, an almost entirely Gentile call, uh, congregation, he was able to say, We are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. The real circumcision that Paul is urging them to get is the same circumcision that God urged his, his people to have in Deuteronomy when he said, circumcise your hearts. When he told them that they needed those circumcised hearts, circumcise your hearts, you stiff-necked, he said through the prophets. You who are afar off because although you are part of the covenant community, your hearts are still far from me. You do not have my spirit dwelling Within you, it was possible to be externally within the covenant community, but not actually united to God. And Paul wants everyone to know that Christ is the only redeemer of men, the only mediator to be uh, between God and man. And therefore, to be without Christ is to be without redemption. It is to be without God. So if you are a Jew who is rejecting Christ, you are no better off. And he's made this point. And he will continue to make it. If you are a Jew rejecting Christ, you are no better off than a Gentile barbarian who is still miles away from the church. In fact, you are worse because you had the oracles and you've sinned against knowledge. You had that knowledge. So when he talks about the commonwealth of, of Israel, okay, he says you were once, yes, you were physically, you weren't born as Jews. You weren't born into the physical commonwealth of Israel, and we know that the commonwealth still existed. But these were people who were once destitute of citizenship. They weren't part of that, that theocratical organization, the kingdom of Israel, which was both a state and a church at the same time. They were strangers also, and this is more important, the point he makes, from the covenants of promise. God had made promises to his people to be their redeemer. He had said that he would redeem them through the promised Messiah, the one who would come. And they were once far away from that. We remember the promises were made to Abraham and his seed. But Paul is going to come in and say, as he does in Galatians 3, that Abraham's seed are not simply the people who are descended from him by birth. Abraham's seed are the people who have the same faith that Abraham had in the promises of God. And so these people who were once outside the covenant, outside of those promises, not receiving circumcision, the sign of God's promises, he says, you were once in that condition, far off, but now you have been brought near. But you remember, and he says, you, you need to remember this. You were once without hope. And not only were you without hope because you were outside of God's covenant promises, there was nothing ahead of you except a certain judgment for your sins. That was what once lay ahead of you just as it laid ahead of all of your ancestors in the past. 
Because without the promise, the sure promise of God and his covenant promises to forgive you, you have no hope. He says also that they were, and the translation in the NKJV here is, they were without God in the world. Now, literally, it, it's kai-athioi and atheists. You were once without hope and atheists in kosmu, in the universe. <laughs> you were without God in the entire world. You were, uh, and the, the word atheist there, obviously God exists, but you did not know him. And this is interesting because, of course, there were one time there were people who were surrounded by gods. You remember when Paul goes to Athens in Acts chapter 17, he looks about him and he sees temples everywhere. He sees, uh, he sees altars everywhere. And he says, I, I see in all things, men of Athens, you are very religious, but you don't know God. You don't know the way of salvation. And that was once their situation. They were without God because they were without the one true God in the universe. Incidentally, uh, the use of the word atheist is, is funny. The, uh, uh, when Polycarp, uh, the archbishop, had been dragged into uh, the arena um, by the proconsul, uh, he was in danger, obviously, of being put to death. And the proconsul, though he was an aged man and a man of great honor within the community, he didn't necessarily want to put him to death. So he kept trying to get him, you know, so just disavow Christ. State you're not part of the covenant community. You're not part of his body. Say, and the interesting thing was the Romans regarded the Christians to be, they called them atheoi. They called them atheists because they only had this, this Jesus. And they disavowed all the other gods. <clears throat> And so the, the uh, proconsul said, say away with these atheists, Polycarp, and I'll let you go. And he looked at all the Romans in the arena who were jeering at him, and he waved his arm, and he said, away with these atheists. <laughs> of course, his meaning was very different, and the proconsul understood immediately. But he says, that's not who you are anymore. I remember when I literally did not know God. I had God's many, but they were all false. They were all idols. But by God's grace, he smashed them all and he brought me near and he incorporated me into his covenant. He brought me into the church. And that's what Paul is talking about. How did he do that? Paul tells us by the blood of Christ, by his blood, you were brought nigh, you were brought near. Without that blood, there is no coming near to God because there is no remission of sin. Once I was foul, absolutely foul in my sins and trespasses. And it was impossible for unholy me to enter into the presence of a holy God. I would literally have gone poof in his, his presence. Been utterly destroyed. But he washed me by the blood of Christ. And therefore I have remission. I have reconciliation. He, Paul tells us, is our peace. And he has affected not just a reconciliation, that is, Christ has affected not just a reconciliation between man and God on the vertical, he has also affected a reconciliation between men and men on the horizontal, through the abolishing of the law, through the abolishing of all those things that once separated Jews and Gentiles. This is very important. It used to be the case that there were these dietary restrictions, for instance, that meant that no Jew and Gentile could eat together. They were unclean. The, and the Jews had to keep kosher. They had all of these, these rules that they had to keep that also separated them and showed their covenant status. 
In Acts chapter 10, we see this amazing moment where Peter has the sheet descending from heaven and it's filled with all sorts of yummy animals that were absolutely off limits. Bacon, for instance, swine were in there. Shrimp (laughs) were in there. All of these things that they could not eat. And he is told, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And then he's told that what God has made clean, he is not to call unclean any longer. Now there can be a bringing together of the Jews and the Gentiles. Now what was it? Did God just wipe out his, his prior law? Did he you know, just crumple it up and say, we don't need that anymore? No, Christ kept it perfectly. All of its requirements terminated in him. How was that? Well, Christ kept the law of God perfectly. He did what Adam did not do, which was he kept the covenant of works in abolishing the law and effecting this twofold reconciliation. Christ did two things. First, he kept the covenant of works that demanded perfect obedience. He never broke any of them. He fulfilled all of the righteousness that was necessary. He was born of a woman, born under the law, but without sin, and he kept it for his people. He kept the conditions of the covenant on our behalf. He didn't need to do it for himself. He did it for all those who were to be united to him by faith. And so when we, and Paul says, when, when you, Ephesians, when you became believers, you were accounted righteous in the sight of God as though you had kept the law yourself. It was imputed to you. And secondly, he abolished the law as a covenant of works by fulfilling its conditions forever. They were just types and shadows pointing forward to the coming of Christ. Now that they are in him, they don't need them anymore. One of the things that drives me spare, to use the the English expression showing my alien nature, I'm sorry, uh, is is the fact that you have now a new generation of of messianic Christians who are trying to once again lift up the law, the covenant, lift up not just the the moral law, which is always in force, but the individual ceremonial laws. So they think that they're righteous before God by not eating bacon sandwiches and that kind of thing, by trying to observe the, the, the ceremonies and types. They fall directly under what Paul was saying. You know, anybody who tries to be justified by the law becomes a debtor to it. It's, your, it's now a requirement that you keep it perfectly. Can you keep it perfectly? No, only one person could keep it perfectly, and he did it. And also, now that these requirements have been taken out of the way, the two are made one. The two different wings of the church in Paul's time. He's saying that Gentiles and Jews can now worship together. They can fellowship together. They can eat together. And the thing that was amazing, they can marry now. Why? Because they're the same. They're aliens no longer. They are citizens of the same kingdom, part of the same commonwealth, because the law has been abolished. Charles Hodge said this, the law was not abolished by Christ as a teacher, but by Christ as a sacrifice. It was not by his doctrine, but by his blood, his body, his death, his cross, that our deliverance from the law was effected. The doctrine of the passage, therefore, is that the middle wall of partition between the Jews and Gentiles, consisting in their mutual enmity, has been removed by Christ, having through his death abolished the law in all its forms as a rule of justification, and thus opening a new way, one new way of access to God, common to Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus affected two things, Paul is telling them. First, 
he has affected a union of Jews and Gentiles together in one body, one church. And secondly, he has reconciled both because both needed salvation. He has reconciled both to God and he did that on the cross. He has broken down, therefore, the barrier of hostility that stood between God and man, and he has broken down the barrier of hostility that stood between men and men. And this leads us to a basic application of all of these things. Uh, Simon Kistemacher wrote these words. Uh, they, are, they are wonderful. I hope you take them to heart. The basic lesson holds for all time. The reason why there is so much strife in this world between individuals, families, social or political groups, whether small or large, is that the contending parties, through the fault of either or both, have not found each other at Calvary. Only then, when sinners have been reconciled to God through the cross, will they be truly reconciled to each other. This shows how very important it is to preach the gospel to all men and to beseech them on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. For a world torn by unrest and friction, the gospel is the only answer. This is why, you know, we can, we can mount all these platitudes about wanting world peace. We will never have it until people are reconciled in the gospel. That is the place where real peace is to be found. Now, all of this was spoken of in the Old Testament. That's the great good news. This is not new. Jesus uh, was spoken of in Isaiah 53 by the prophet. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And it was clear in the prophecy of Isaiah that that many included the Gentiles as well. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. A while back on the 25th, I, I preached about the Lord's Day and how Isaiah looked forward uh, to the time when eunuchs would be part of the people of God, something that hadn't uh, been possible under the ceremonial law. They weren't able to come into the temple. Now they can go boldly to the throne of grace through Christ. Foreigners, certainly not allowed past the wall of separation. Now they are to be brought in. This is Isaiah 56. All of them unified in Christ. All of us reconciled to him. All of us cleansed from our sins and iniquities. Without money coming and receiving a treasure greater than we could ever, ever think of. And looking forward to a time when the church will be one. When there will be nothing to divide us. No longer any language differences. No longer any ethnic tensions or anything like that. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful day that will be when there is nothing to divide brother from brother, sister from sister, when our communion will be perfect. That day is coming. And what can we do in the meantime? We can preach the gospel. We can not fall prey to all of the vain philosophies of men which, which split us apart and certainly not allow them into the church. It's one of the reasons why I've resisted and I will always resist the, the preaching of ridiculous doctrines that, that spring from Marxist philosophy like critical race theory. This, brothers and sisters, breaks down forever any idea that there's to be a permanent separation between us. But not only should we stand against those who preach, as I said, Marxist doctrine like critical race theory, we need to also stand against actual racists 
who stand and, and say that, you know, our, our race is better than others. And that's not just, you know, white nationalists here in the United States. I have to tell you, I've, I've, some of the most racist people I've met have been outside the United States. But there's this, this national pride and a hatred towards others. That is only to find its end in Christ. It's only in him that we can, we can put all that aside and know true companionship, true brotherhood, true reconciliation. It's not to be found in political experiments. It's not to be found in sociology. It's not to be found in vain philosophies, as I said. It's only to be found in him as we become part of his body, as we surrender to him and become together his douloi, his slaves, slaves of Christ. This is what allowed Paul, I mean, think about it. This is what Paul, the Pharisee who hated Gentiles, who persecuted the church, is preaching to the very people he once despised and hated, but now loved and is a brother to. He's opening up his heart and saying, I'm so glad we're part of the same body. And he's not saying it is a, you know, just a platitude or a pleasantry or so on, but I'm going to not eat with you. I'm not going to spend time in your home, and I'm going to secretly regard you as a second-class person. That wasn't it at all. He loved them as his brothers and sisters in Christ and was willing, as he demonstrated again and again, to lay down his life for their sake, to do everything necessary to bring them to heaven with him. That should be our goal, brothers and sisters, as well. It should be to make of one, make one of the entire body of humanity through the gospel. This is the only thing that can do it. We have the most powerful thing in the universe for effecting reconciliation, both between God and man, the greatest reconciliation we need, and man and man. And yet we so little and so infrequently put it into operation. Let that not be the case any longer. Make it, the, make it your aim to see that great reconciliation being advanced by you in the preaching of the gospel to all mankind. Let's go before him. God, our Father, I thank you so much for the amazing good news. I thank you that you are the one who eliminated the middle wall of separation, not only the one that separated us from, from Jews, but also the middle wall that separated us from you, Lord, that great partition one that was insurmountable were it not for the blood of Christ. It is amazing that we have this, this plaque that talked about the fact that anybody who crossed it would die. And yet Christ died to make it possible for us to cross it. Now, it is a wonderful thing. It is great good news. Help us, therefore, to proclaim that to the world, that in the reconciling death of Jesus, we have unity with you and union with one another. And we pray all of